welcome to Future Bites. I'm here with Ben Stanger, Dr. Ben Stanger, Professor of Cancer Research and Professor of Cell and Developmental Biology at UPenn here in Philadelphia and a bunch of other things besides. So I'm going to link your bio to this with all the other things you're doing. And the author of a book I happen to be reading right now, I bought it the other day, From One Cell. So I wanted to talk about that, but welcome. And thank you for making time for me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is great. It's great to meet you and love what you're doing. Yeah, love getting the word out about the wonderful science here. I mean, two new Nobel laureates yesterday um, out of this uh, medical research facility. And I've been meeting people who are pushing the boundaries in CAR T-cell therapies. Bruce Levine the other day. And um, Kieran Musnuru, who's looking at gene editing for uh, people with high cholesterol and to prevent heart disease. It's like all the magic's happening right here. It's, it's a heck of a place. So I wanted to ask you first about your book uh, because I'm jumping into it. I'm enjoying it immensely. So From One Cell does something that I especially love, which is combining the history of the science with the science. So it's real storytelling. Um, where's the background on that? What made you want to do this, the story of the cell from first principles? Well, well um, thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. This is, this is great. I'm really glad you're enjoying the book. Um, so, so my background, I, I'm mostly a cancer researcher, but my mm. background as a postdoctoral fellow was in developmental biology. And I really fell <laughs> in love with the field and just the concept of, how do we all get here? We all start out, yeah. whether we're human beings as we are, or animals as a single cell. And when you think about it, that one cell going and dividing again and again and again to create a human being that's capable of all the things that we do, it's just a remarkable, remarkable thing. So, um, so I think I've been fascinated by the field of development. Now, why write a book about it? Well, I fell in love with science, even as a kid, by listening to scientists. I wasn't one of those people who spent a lot of time in nature who yeah. play around, but it was, it was watching Cosmos uh, with yeah, uh, Carl, Carl Sagan. Sagan. Exactly. <laughs> that I was, you know, and, and I grew up in New York, so going to the New York Academy of Science and, and hearing scientists talk about their work, it not only filled me with a kind of amazement at the world of science, but also that the people doing it were so into what they were doing. And, um, and I think that instilled in me early on that there's a kind of almost responsibility yeah. as a scientist to share that knowledge, to share what we do. So I think those two things kind of came together for me is, is a love of embryology, a love of development, just the complexity of it and the beauty of it and a need to share that yeah. with uh, with other people. So oh, this wonderful. is the result. Yeah, it's storytelling at its finest. Science is always like this great big adventure story when it's told well. Uh, and it must be like that for the discoverers, right? These yeah. moments of, of just pure joy. And it's, it's true. But the, the challenge, and, you know, I think this is, this is why there aren't as many um, books about science written by scientists as yeah. by science journalists, is... How do you give that excitement, the, mm. like the pleasure of doing science, of discovering things, and the knowledge that comes along with it without writing a textbook? 
Yeah. That's the that's the that was the challenge for me. It took quite a, a while to sort of figure out how do you make it interesting, yeah. um, but still get you know get to the you know the meat of the matter. Yeah. Well, I'm loving it. I'm loving the the moments where they're grasping for explanations, where we're just groping towards mRNA as a mechanism and, and, and as alternative viewpoints, which you've canvassed in the storytelling. Love it very much. Um, it reminds me, that sort of storytelling, one of my favorite books was by Richard Rhodes. It won a Pulitzer, so hey, you know, it's all possible here. <laughs> but he wrote a history of the atomic bomb, but he wrote it on a, a human level. And the, the opening chapter is so gripping. It's Leo Zillard crossing the road in London. And it's the moment, it's trying to capture the moment when he understood before crossing the road, before he reached the other side, the chain reaction, the possibilities in the energy release in a chain reaction. Um, and that it's just gripping, you know, the, your hair stands up on your head as he stops, he literally stops, you know, this sudden jolt of understanding. And uh, I've already come across a few moments like that in, in From Oneself. So. You'll, you'll, you'll come across more, I'm sure, and towards the very end there's a, there's a chapter about day science and night science, it's called. This is a phrase yeah. that was coined by uh, Francois Jacob. He was the discoverer of, of mRNA. Yeah. And uh, he talks about um, day science is, you know, when you're a scientist and you're kind of doing things that make sense. You have a clear hypothesis and you're just trying to prove or disprove it. I think that's how most people yeah. think about yeah, yeah, what yeah. we do in the laboratory. Night science is where you make an observation and you have no idea what it freaking means. That it's just uh, okay, and you start going through basically this this fog. You can see maybe ten feet ahead of you, but you don't really yeah. know where you're going. And it's those moments yeah. that are where the big um, where the big impact comes. But it's extremely uncomfortable as a science to be as a scientist to be there to you know to be in uncharted waters. To yeah. not really know whether this is going to lead to something interesting or, yeah. you know, a kind of, a, you know, a dead on arrival PhD <laughs> kind of thing. So, but that's uh, that's that's the most exciting yeah. uh, time. Was he the guy that was with his wife at the movies? Yeah, and then he left, yes. and he said to his wife at the end of the, I think I've just come up with something big. <laughs> the, the, probably the understatement of the century, yes. I think I just came up with a good idea. See, that's, <laughs> that's the magic in, in this. So, um, yeah, thank you for writing it. It's, it's extraordinary. Now, if we can switch to research, the, the opportunity I've got to talk to you here, um, I really want to just kind of explore a little bit about the hopes and dreams because there's so much going on in cancer at the moment with different therapies. Uh, blood cancer therapies in particular have had great success out of uh, UPenn. And um, I'm really interested in just the pathways you're seeing in your research that are exciting as we push forward where you see particular possibilities. And I, I know you said just before we started, it's a huge question. <laughs> but, you know, even if we captured a few of the, the things that just are top of mind for you that you go, you know what, that's got a lot of potential in your mind. Um, I'd love to know about that. Yeah, yeah well, well, let's start with, uh, with um, immunotherapy. Yeah. CAR T-cells, you, you know what they are there, um, these T-cells that have been engineered to go and kill cells um, with a specific, with a specificity that are expressing some molecule that the T-cell can recognize. And that has been really successful for liquid tumors, for blood cancers, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, the 
target cells, the cancer cells are they're there in the blood. They're easily accessible yeah. um, to the killer T cells. Um, and the targets that scientists, Carl June, Bruce Levine, have been able to um, figure out and others um, are um, have, have been relatively easy to find. So the, the first and most prominent CAR T cell, the CD19 yeah. uh, CARs, the CD19 molecule is present on B cells and um, it is on most of those cancers, most of the cancer cells. So it makes it relatively easy for the CAR T cells to find those yep. cells and kill them. The, the next challenge and where I hope we're headed and we're doing some work along these lines in my laboratory, as many people are, is figuring out how to, how to apply that model to solid tumors, to the big cancer killers, breast cancer, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, and so on and so forth. And all the things that made CAR T cells, I certainly won't say easy for blood cancers, because yeah. that was an immense effort and an immense achievement. Mark but that it, was, yeah. in some sense, the low-hanging fruit. Yes. Because when it comes to solid tumors, you have problems of access. The cells aren't sitting right there. They're embedded in a very hostile environment that doesn't want the immune system to recognize it and has built up all of these defenses. And then the targets are not so great. They're, we don't have a CD19 equivalent uh, that's present just on the cancer cells that we can do without in other normal cell types. Oh, there's not a clear targeting mechanism in solid? No. So the way that the CAR T cell works is it finds a molecule that's present on the target cells. Mm -hmm. And that molecule may also be present on normal cells. Yep. But in the case of CD19, the target for current uh, CAR T cells, you don't care whether it kills cancer cells and normal cells with CD19. Yeah. The result of a successful CAR T cell treatment is you lose all of your B cells. Right. But you can live without B cells. You can cells. live without them, yeah. Right. But if you imagine you have a solid tumor cell that has a molecule that you'd like to car uh, target with a CAR T cell, that molecule may also be on normal solid tissues elsewhere in the body. So now at the same time that the CAR T cell is killing the cancer, it has the potential to kill lots of normal cells and cause yeah. lots of toxicity. So the search is on for that perfect target molecule that's okay. specific to the cancer and not. And there are lots of candidates, but so far we haven't found one. And then, I see. And then there's this whole problem of how do you overcome the immunosuppressive nature of the tumor, the fact that it doesn't want the T cells to get in there and kill the cancer cells? How do we allow the T mm -hmm. cells to do their, to their job? So I think there's a lot of progress there. I think we'll get there, but it's a lot of night science, a yeah. lot of slogging your way through to, to, to get to that. A lot of data related. I mean, I think now of something I saw years ago, the Cancer Atlas. I think this is a broad, they were talking about it, and they were sequencing every known variant of every known cancer and trying to get biopsies from around the world and build a library and make it open source. Maybe it's almost complete now, I'm not sure. But, mm -hmm. but is the problem one of basically brute force and lots and lots of data to find that, that sort of target? So, so that's a slightly different angle on, okay. on using the immune system to target cancer. So in the CAR T cell, we're just looking for a molecule, typically a nor uh, it can be an abnormal or mutated molecule, but it, in the case of CD19, it's a normal molecule okay. present normally on cells. What you're describing is 
these large-scale efforts, international efforts, um, to find all of the mutations that happen across cancers. So, okay. right, cancer is a genetic disease. Each cancer has a different spectrum of mutations, and knowing what those mutations are and figuring out how to target each one individually is the notion behind so-called oh, precision medicine. As opposed to the molecule that, that's just common. That's common. just common, yeah. right, exactly. I understand. So what, what that effort enables as far as immune therapy is concerned is if you find um, that there's been a mutation in a protein that normally is, is not recognized by the immune system because itself, it's part of us, yeah. but that mutation causes it to now no longer be considered self by the immune system, that means the immune system can mount a reaction to it. And we can help the immune system by making a vaccine that's based around that now altered yeah. um, protein. Okay. So that's, that's yet a parallel effort that's I going see. on right now where we try to use the information that um, is coming from all of those sequencing efforts mm -hmm. and design better ways to get the immune system to recognize those altered peptides. Mm -hmm. So um, moving from liquid to solid tumors... Lots of hope. You feel optimistic about those pathways. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, we're thinking outside the box more and more. Before you came into my office, I was just talking with a couple of, uh, of students, uh, medical students, who are putting together a presentation in a whole new area of biology um, that's kind of fascinating. So I'll digress okay. into it for a second, yeah, if yeah. I may. Um, called endogenous retroviruses, endogenous okay. retroviral elements. So retroviruses are a type of virus, HIV is an example of one, that um, infect cells and their DNA gets integrated into our genome. Yeah. All right? And over millions of years of evolution, these viruses have scattered and spread throughout our genome. So we have thousands of viruses from evolution embedded in our genomes. And over time, this has led um, to our, we have figured out ways to silence them, right? So they're in our genome. They generally don't cause trouble because through a combination of immune system and gene regulation and so on and so forth, they just sort of sit there and they don't cause trouble. But when a cancer cell emerges, some of these retroviruses that are silent now become expressed. They're able to make proteins. And those proteins are also not going to be recognized by the immune system. So there's the possibility that these, these ancient viruses that have been sitting around silently for years could also become targets that we can use to leverage the immune system. Almost like a tangential way of uh, identifying and finding the cancer. Exactly right. Wow. Okay, interesting. So, so yes, so to answer your question, lots of movement. It's a rapidly changing field with immunotherapy and cancer and solid tumors. Um, I expect great things in the next 10 years. And specifically on pancreatic cancer, I believe that's a big focus for yourself. For my lab, yes. Yeah, and I believe also, um, I think I read on your website that it's about to be the number two. 
in, uh, killer, I guess, cancer killer. Would in, that be? in the United States, it's predicted in the next few years to become the second leading cause of cancer death behind lung cancer, it's, yes. It's, it's very aggressive, isn't it? And, and very aggressive, and it's fast, and it also returns quickly. I'm, I'm in, in sort of dumbing it down, I guess, in the way I talk about it. But, um, yeah, so, so where are we at with that? And, and what are some of the pathways there? Yeah, so pancreas cancer is, is so lethal um, because it's kind of a perfect storm mm -hmm. of, of all of the problems of different types of cancer. It spreads early, so it's metastasized through the body most of the time when it's discovered. That just intrinsically makes it hard to treat. There aren't really good drugs, just the, cancers, yeah. the cancer cells have figured out ways um, to not be particularly responsive to... To, to chemotherapy. Um, so where is the where is the promise? So the promise is in immunotherapy is one area. Um, all of the things that we talked about just a moment ago, those are all areas that we're tackling yeah. um, in pancreas cancer. There's some really um, uh, exciting data that came out um, just uh, uh, in the last year using what I just described, the finding of mutant peptides mm -hmm. or mutant proteins that are abnormal in the cancer cells, then designing a vaccine, um, giving that vaccine to a patient and um, giving that vaccine to a patient who's had their, their tumor removed mm -hmm. and seeing if that immune response that comes from that vaccine can prevent the tumor from recurring. And what's kind of cool and puts lots of pieces together is how did they make that vaccine? They used the mRNA technology that just won the Nobel Prize <laughs> yeah. uh, here yesterday. Yeah. And that's only possible, um, this vaccine approach is really only possible because of that technology. Because if you imagine it, you have to go from the patient sequence to having the tumor out to making the vaccine and giving it to the patient in the span of about two or three months. It's got to be quick. So it's yeah. got to be quick. And this mRNA nanoparticle technology is fast. That's why the COVID yeah. vaccines could come together within a year. And the early it. results are very promising, aren't they, that vaccine, the early trial results? The early trial results are, are, are very promising, but it was a phase one trial, yeah. all of the limitations, right? We really yeah. need to be cautious, especially <laughs> in, in clinical medicine. But yeah, yeah, very promising, very exciting. It's going on to phase two. Yeah. And... Um, just uh, backtracking slightly, but when a cancer like pancreatic cancer metastasizes and, and appears in all kinds of places, yes. uh, are all the same markers evident in all of the different tumors, or is each one potentially different? Uh, this is a sorry, a dumb yeah, question. No, no, it's not a dumb question at all. In fact, that's one of the big problems. And it, it, so each, each metastatic site, each tumor in different parts of the body can be different. Okay. And even within... One wow. tumor, <laughs> there can be different properties, um, and that's referred to as tumor heterogeneity. Okay. And so tumor is an evolving, mm. it's an evolving organism, if you will. And so if we have a therapy that works on part of the tumor, but another part of the tumor is different in such a way that that therapy doesn't work, yeah. of course, you know, getting rid of half a tumor isn't really going to get you all that far. Not so enough. That, so this is this is why we haven't done quite as well with cancer as we have with uh, with other problems. But again, yeah. we're getting there. Yeah. Uh, um, now this is a bit of a tough call, but if you were to sort of uh, step back and say twenty years from now, or even thirty, pick pick your time frame. But could you 
Draw a picture for us of how you think of the progress. Do you feel like it's almost a random, where are the easiest pathways? It seems like that to me, that we follow the easiest pathways, so then low-hanging fruit effectively. Sometimes we make an, an occasional discovery about a rare disease or cancer, but when it comes to um, the myriad forms of cancer, are there particular flavors which, you know, we're, we're, we'll probably have defeated first? Or is it, you know, is there a way of kind of drawing the landscape of how you think about this? This Are they all going to be manageable diseases rather than curable diseases? That's That's been put to me as well. Yeah, um, I think that's one, one good way about thinking about cancer is the more uh, we understand about the genetic and epigenetic changes yeah. that happen in cancer, the more we have an arsenal of drugs so that when one drug stops working, we can bring another one on board, we can bring another one on board. So that is slowly converting cancer yeah. to a chronic disease that's less lethal. So that's one one approach yeah. that's a little bit incremental. Um, the reason there's so much excitement that I'm so excited about immunotherapy is that the cancer can evolve around therapies, but the immune system can evolve around cancer. I see. So it's... Right. So we, you know, we're only limited in, okay, what's the next drug that we can give for this cancer? But the immune system is constantly trying to keep up with the cancer as it's changing and recognizing it. Mm. So that's, I think, another avenue is helping the immune system along. The, the big, the biggest impact, I think, in cancer will come not from treating cancer, but from preventing it from happening in the first place. We're here at Penn. Our founder was Ben Franklin. He said, uh, uh, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, that's where we, where we can really have an impact. Um, so how do we do that? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so there is a emerging concept uh, out there now called cancer interception. I don't know if you've come across not. this phrase before. Mm -hmm. It's a little subtly different from prevention. So prevention would be let's intervene in a way that no, no the process doesn't even get started. Yeah. So say smoking cessation, getting people to stop smoking. That's a form of prevention. Yes. All your listeners, you should <laughs> please ask them to stop smoking. That's a great thing to do. Um, interception is the cancer has started, but we do something at a very early stage to reset the clock, to mm -hmm. take it back mm -hmm. in time. The, perhaps one of the best examples of cancer interception that we're doing right now is colonoscopy. Mm -hmm. right, so I'm a gastroenterologist. I do colonoscopies. We see a polyp. That's a premalignant lesion. It's on its way to becoming a cancer. Yep. We take it out. We intercept it, just like a yep. American football player, you know, <laughs> intercepts that football before it can get, you know, into the end zone. Yeah. So that I think is where we need to be headed to be able to detect or identify those at risk of developing an advanced cancer and giving some kind of drug or some kind of therapy at that early stage mm -hmm. that prevents it from going all the way. And chemically detecting rather than just physically detecting 
I mean, through when you do a colonoscopy, there's that, observation. Right? right. That would be an example of mechanical, mechanical. interception. All right, mechanical, right. Interception. mechanical interception. But uh, we could imagine if there was a drug, right? The, in fact, the same drugs that we give to patients with cancer, yeah. because they target the cancer cells, may also work yeah. in these very early lesions as well. So we may find ourselves in a point in time where we're giving cancer drugs mm -hmm. to individuals who don't have cancer, mm. but are at risk of developing it and halting the process. Interesting. Um, I guess where I'm going with that thought process is uh, when I look at things like Sherlock and other technologies with CRISPR-Cas13, you know, can we use these molecules to very, very fine detection? Can we detect the pre-stages of cancer like that as well? Like, could you do a scan one day, perhaps, a uh, blood test? And it says, you know what, you haven't got cancer, but you've got the preliminary. Is that possible? Or is that Absolutely yeah. possible. Yeah. Absolutely possible. It's very, very difficult, right, because to be able to find that needle in a haystack yeah. marker yeah. of a very early cancer, you need to do very large studies looking at, you know, many, many people and see what they do over time. Yep. Yep. Okay. Now we're running out of time and uh, I'm very grateful for what I've got here. So um, is there anything else that you'd put on the radar for people? You'd say, watch out for this. Not many people know or, sh or more people should know about what, what's happening in a particular area or, or have we kind of covered that ground? Well, I, I think we've, we've covered a lot today. Um, I, I would come back one more time to this you know, remarkable mRNA vaccine technology because where we've heard about it and where it's gotten most of its publicity is with respect to COVID, right? It yeah. enabled the COVID vaccines. Yeah. But I think this is the way that we are going to be making most of our vaccines in the future. It allows, you know, the technology to occur rapidly. Gave you an example of how this is likely going to be applied to cancer and cancer vaccines. And um, it's it's also going to you know have the ability to introduce new genes yeah. um, into cells rapidly for gene therapy approaches. So yeah. uh, it's such an exciting time here at Penn, and uh, it's an exciting time in medicine. And in medicine, I think, I think it really is a golden era of medicine we're moving into. It, it just keeps striking me how much is going on in parallel right now. It's so true. Very very exciting time. Um, very optimistic time. Thanks for your time. Professor Ben Stanger, and um, I'd love to stay in touch and I'm going to do some more reading, not only of your book, but on the interception uh, strategies and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of take that on as well. Wonderful. Pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. Thanks.